1883, Otto von Bismarck enacted a series of state-funded social programs geared towards offering direct financial assistance to poorer segments of German society. Often viewed cynically as an attempt at staving off socialist revolution in the working class, Bismarck's system for the rapidly industrializing and militarizing nation has proven a model for many governments worldwide. As government spending has swelled in places that adopted the welfare model, such as France reaching as high as 50% and public debt surpassing 100% of GDP, however, many are questioning the sustainability of ever more quote-unquote free handouts. Tonight, we discuss the appeal, the mechanics, and the peril of the welfare state in general, the United States in particular, and its prospects going forward. I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. Military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been time-stealing. Hello, and welcome back to the Myth of the 20th Century podcast. Uh, my name is Hans Lander. Uh, Joining me this evening, we have uh, all three esteemed gentlemen uh, that I share the co-host position with. We have uh, Mr. Adam Smith. Hey, everyone. You're also we esteemed. Have, <laughs> we have Mr. Uh, Hank Oslo. <coughs> hey, guys. He's pulled off his uh, gas mask to talk to us. Thanks. You can put it back have, now. Uh, well, we have Nick Mason, who is uh, joining us from the bunker. Is that right, Nick? Yeah, that's right, man. I am ready for the plague wars. <laughs> we were well, we were really just spending a, a lot of uh, uh, warm up time, whatever you want to call it, before we started actually legitimately talking about that. We were um, we were sharing thoughts, strategies, speculations, rumors. We don't know what the hell's going on, guys. But I think it's prudent at this point just to get very simply. A little reserve uh, so that you can shelter in place and just be very hygienic and uh, don't trust the uh, the mainstream. Yeah, I would. I wonder if after the plague wars, people will be sitting around the campfire and trying to explain uh, what a podcast was. It was something that existed in the long, long ago in the before time. Right. Well, Along you see, it's, a, it's what you would wait. It's what you would uh, you would listen to as you you drove to San Francisco from from your house. It's like, huh? It's uh, where where's San Francisco? It's no longer What's on the, the house. What's that house? Yeah. Well, I I would recommend uh, for those you know I think that there have been those who, uh, as Adam told us just before we went on that. Um, have been asking for advice in private and uh, been wondering what they should do. Uh, as Adam said, just be prepared. Get yourself some reserves. Make sure you have at least two weeks. Water, batteries, 
grocery bags, trash bags, well, you know, and, aluminum uh, foil, monsters. food. Yeah. You know, make sure you have dish soap and any laundry medicine that you need that you take right, on a regular. Right. Yes, and any Please. household amenities that you want that you need. You know, we're we're going to assume that. Our infrastructure is not going to go down right away, so you can count. You, you can assume that the lights yeah. will come on and the water will run. But your just freezer be, works, right? Your freezer works, but just have enough so that you know if things get a little dicey, you can shelter in place. You can stay home. You can provide for others, maybe, and you can just kind of weather the storm. I, uh, I, I get some will... chocolate for your women. Get some tasty, uh, tasty, sweet, like fruit stuff for your kids. Maintain morale. Like be, be able to. Like now is probably not the time to just like turtle up completely. But don't black pill to your family. Okay, just do the black pilling online with your friends. But don't go to your wife and and call her like a zog shill if she says it's yeah. It it doesn't help. It really doesn't. I mean, negativity breeds on negativity. Yeah, but when. The plague war is to make sure to flex on everybody in your life and when you are right all <laughs> once, once once they're obvious yes yes but uh we're, don't yeah. hold your breath for that one because uh <laughs> it takes normies a while but uh, I, I, I just if i can underline uh my strategy and I, I hear a lot of people uh sharing it but a lot of people not necessarily just don't get all your stored food in perishable form please 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 don't do that in case you got to move somewhere in case your, your freezer doesn't work you don't have electricity you don't know so a lot of people like dry food i prefer canned but one of the two just please don't make it something that is going to spoil that's all i have to say and make sure above you know i've noticed a lot of people do not seem to prepare for this make sure you have cooking oils sunflower oil grapeseed oil um olive oil make sure you have the basics that you can still cook and you won't, you know, immediately burn your food to your pan or your pot. Salt, have salt, get and get iodized salt. Yeah. <laughs> Make sure that you have all the little things you might not even think of that you would need in that kind of situation, just enough so that you can be pleasant at your home for a couple weeks if need be. It's extremely likely that at this point you have some amount of time, uh, depending on what area you're in. It's like keep track of what you cook and what you eat every day just write it down and then go and get that like times two after you know a week or four days or whatever like there's there's a lot of stuff where you just kind of reach for the container and you don't even realize like oh honey we're out of coffee again it's like yeah well coffee keeps for like you know nine months or something so uh not not a bad idea to keep track of what your run rate is and then just like, you know, end up with a large amount of coffee that you can make. Yeah. And and don't panic. I mean, uh, to be honest, I, I think this is just what we're living in interesting times is the Chinese uh, curse or uh, blessing, however you want to interpret it goes. It really is up to you. I mean, you are dealt a hand in life and you can't change certain things. The only thing you can change is how you play it. So it's just going to be up to you like always. And I think you're being positive in a constructive way. Don't be you know, foolish, but in a 
constructive way that is going to make the most of whatever your situation is is always the approach but especially in something like this i mean if you if you go to sleep and you're worried you really if you're if your brain is trying to find answers and your brain just doesn't have it you just have to meditate and you have to do something else because it's it's just not a good thing to get into it's a human defense mechanism that we get into because we when we're scared uh we our adrenaline starts shooting up and you have this uh, fight flight etc response but your higher order thinking really is reduced and it's only going to help you in very primate or primitive uh, situations when it's something as convoluted as global conspiracy theory or pandemic, which we didn't evolve for, it's not going to help you. So you really have to just kind of let your body uh, relax, and that'll actually, in ironically, be the best thing you can do. Because once you're healthy, once you're well rested, you can make the best decisions then. But if you're going to get scared about this stuff, it's it's not good. So whatever makes you happy, go do that, and you're you're being wise to do that. It's not, you don't have to feel guilty about it. That's all I want to say. Cause some people and well, my, myself included don't want to quote, uh, to, to quote, or, uh, thinking about what you can't control only wastes energy and creates its own enemy. I love Worf. You know, it makes me happy getting money from the government. So free. Right. Does it make you so, happy? Yeah, Dude, you know, take every I, I, dime uh, you can get. To make some people happy. I'm still waiting for my to keep telling me it's in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I'm really glad that uh, a huge chunk of my earnings every month go towards financing uh, the AC to be on 24 seven in Boca Raton, Florida. Yeah. Um, and tonight, uh, our actual subject of interest is the mechanism by which that phenomena exists. Um, it's a very precarious phenomena. Uh, it'll likely go bankrupt in a decade or two. Um, so we should at least talk about it, assuming uh, we're not wiped out by the plague or the ensuing riots. Uh, we will have to deal with this subject of Social Security uh, eventually and other entitlement spending. So uh, without further ado, we would like to discuss the American entitlement system uh, and what it is, how we got here, and what exactly we can do about it. Um, so when you guys think of entitlements, what comes to mind first? Guy on a couch with a big bowl of chips. Homer Otto Simpson. Von Bismarck solidifying the state. Uh, Nick, what do you think of entitlements? Taco Bell. Well, enough said. Every month. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Taco Bell will occasionally give them internet. It's cold, but it's free, man. I don't know. Are there entitlements for internet access? Could be like work out Uh, that. Yes, actually. I I think it's becoming a universal basic right, according to uh, some politician. I heard Elon Musk is going to do like hot air balloons with internet access. Can we get a hot air balloon over Nick Mason's house? that was Google, actually. Oh. They shut that down. Uh, oh. But uh, e- Elon is doing the Starlink thing, which actually seems like it might work, or at least they're launching a bunch of satellites. Okay, but it has to be yeah. free, right? 
because otherwise I'm not interested. I love how these like complete nobody losers have this like attitude that they're the arbiter of making heavy decisions like this. It's like, well, you know, if Facebook wasn't free, I wouldn't use it. And I'm like, who who cares? I I, I don't. I, don't, I mean, <laughs> like, you're not in the position to create anything. You're, obviously, my biases are coming out here, but it's uh, yes. I just wanted to imitate the people that I stereotypically disdain who want stuff. Okay, so I'm I'm gonna just throw out my pitch here um, at at the beginning. Uh, it, like, there's a financial construct of uh it's like you got debt and you've got equity you've got like i give you a certain amount of money and you give me like a definite amount of money back for whatever and i don't really care what you use it for and then you've got like okay i'm now invested in this particular thing i give you the money to do this particular thing and you give me some amount to pay off from that maybe it doesn't work out maybe it works out really well and there's kind of a hybrid, uh, it's like a hybrid instrument where it's like, well, I give you some amount of money and like I get some, you know, kind of defined proportion of a thing uh, on the back end. And it's really easy to model something like social security effectively as a, like a GDP bond. Like I pay you some amount of money up front in payroll taxes and I get some amount of the payroll taxes that are coming in in like 50 years or however long it is uh, from now and that's not like an obviously stupid thing to do if you have this kind of hypothesis that well when people are really old they don't earn that much money and we want to redistribute this uh this money from young people to old people essentially like in principle you can make that work uh in practice you know questions arise but in principle like this is not this is not like tyranny this is not like stupid this is like a pretty good way to spread uh spread money over time and across populations in a way that probably overall enhances uh you know one might say the the social security of the yeah. of the country well you're creating a, a a risk pool it's the basis of why insurance is supposed to be beneficial because well, and the way i actually came to understand insurance and be a fan of the theory, as you're pointing out, not necessarily the practice of it, because I think most insurance companies are criminals, but um, the theory I like, because when it hit me to understanding why it was actually a benefit to society, I thought it was pretty neat. And if I can just sort of try to summarize what uh, I think you're, you're getting at and what I interpret as basically insurance is it's all probabilities. And so if you have a group of, uh, let's say, two people, right? Uh, and then you both agree to help each other if the other person gets into a bad spot. Um, the odds of person A or person B getting hurt in that scenario uh, are, let's say, well, I'm not going to go into the numbers because I think this will confuse things, but let's just say if somebody gets hurt in that situation, the other guy only can cover so much because he... He has, he's a normal guy, and so he's not extremely extravagantly wealthy. 
And so whatever that guy, let's say he gets hit by a car. Uh, this is the argument for health insurance. That friend is not going to have enough money to cover, most likely, the extremely hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, medical insurance, or not insurance, but medical bills for this, this friend of his. But, but if you have a group of 100 friends, then, and again, the, the odds of you or the next guy getting hurt don't change, but what changes is the fact that that entire group can actually compensate that, that one person. Uh, and so it's it's a way to minimize the the average downside for the number of people uh, by by having many people in the group, uh, and that that sort of made sense to me. And that that's like a slightly different thing than social security because the the genius part of social security is that it's pure money in money out. It's not like well if this set of conditions holds that. Because as soon as you start putting conditions on things, well, you where, have to live well, to a certain it, it's age. for, excuse me. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, you have to live to a certain age. I mean, that's the, the basic yeah. condition. And that's so. that's really just it. It's like the amount of income that you paid in, and then like how old you get. But for something like uh, like health insurance, where you start being like, well, what is health care? Well, it turns out you need to pay a guy in order to figure that out. And it turns out that healthcare is primarily provided by these giant companies that form their own constituency. And now they're being, well, we have this magic machine that works uh, 10% of the time that can cure your cancer and it costs a million bucks a shot. And, uh, you know, you're going to pay for that, right? And then you pay another guy to figure out whether you're going to pay for that. And you pay another guy to figure out whether this guy even has a condition that's treatable. And it's turtles all the way down that form their own political constituencies to all get a chunk of that pie. And that, you know, it, like healthcare is a good thing when you're sick. Like health insurance is a good thing if you have spiky uh, medical uh, expenses. But it does lead to uh, kind of entrenched constituencies that try to uh, do things like mutate your cost structure to the point where the United States spends far more on health care than any other country yes. in the world we, are not. We spend uh, probably at this point 19, 20% of our entire economy on keeping basically the walking dead alive uh, or not dead. Let's just put it that way. Uh, and it, it's very skewed to the very old, and I'm not going to start making value judgments here, but you can just sort of very quickly see that there's a huge discrepancy between what we pay in the United States and what other advanced countries like uh, Japan or Sweden or Canada even uh, would pay, and they pay about half uh, of, of that, and they have very similar health outcomes. Now, garbage in, garbage out, so we have arguably the, the most obese perhaps uh, some of the most unhealthy people in the advanced uh, advanced world as well. So I think that also plays into it as well. But just on the surface, the United States spends an exorbitant amount of money on healthcare. And I, I do think that is a problem. The solution is, is trickier, but I think that's an obvious problem. And it's not just healthcare. Like when you, when you talk about entitlements as, you know, it comes from this idea that you are entitled to, uh, a certain set of uh, services or a certain amount of money or whatever. 
uh, faux free or because you, you know, the, the idea that it's kind of like provided by virtue of being a citizen without some sort of a uh, pay in is kind of implicit or it was implicit at one point um, to the notion of entitlements per se. Now, not so much, but when you when you talk about that whole uh, scheme, we were talking about coronavirus at the beginning of this of the uh, the show. We see situations like Seattle, New York City, uh, uh, Elk River, and a bunch of other places where the argument is made: well, we can't shut the schools that are a primary transmission vector because they bring together like fifteen hundred people that don't. Uh, don't necessarily get symptoms but spread it to other people uh, because this is how we distribute things like the three hot meals that you're entitled to per day. This is where uh, we provide uh, you know the only the only medical services these poor children uh, receive. This is the only place where they can come and even do laundry. It's it's a self-perpetuating system because the administrators of uh, this system of distributing these things that you are theoretically, quote-unquote, entitled to form their own power block. And so regardless of the facts on the ground, they're always going to say that, well, these are essential services and you can't possibly uh, stop spending uh, twenty or thirty thousand yeah. dollars uh, per year per homeless person in San Francisco or whatever it's up to now. Yeah, all I, of which approximately goes to the salaries of very well endowed, uh, quote unquote, nonprofits, and in turn flows through a never-ending uh, pyramid of cat ladies. I, I got into a fairly heated discussion. I I didn't want to because I like the person, but I, I didn't want to get into a full-blown shouting match uh, recently with someone about the topic of socialized, I'm not sure if the right term is, but just giving the United States government authority over things like national health and as well as education, because I think they're very similar. I mean, you can make the same arguments. It's like, well, it's a public good to have you know, people educated and it's a public good to have them healthy. I agree. I agree. The problem is, do I trust the United States government? And I don't. I really don't. Uh, and I, I've probably given more than a dozen reasons uh, throughout the history of the show. I'm not going to go through each of them, but this other person was just saying, you know, well, you know, statistics show that, you know, if, if you have this and this, then it's better. And I'm like, I know, but, and they even acknowledge like the United States is not those other countries. And I, that that's always what it comes down to. It's like, I don't feel like this is my country. And I don't know if they understand that argument, but that's where I'm coming from. I can kind of understand where they're coming from because they look at these functioning societies where they do have, like Finland has a great education system supposedly, and it probably has one, and it's run very strictly by all these certain Finnish standards as opposed to letting everybody just homeschool. I'm in the United States at this point. I just look. I would love it if the government was actually competent, uh, but and this is. It's been an old position of mine, uh, going back to libertarian days and everything. But even if I were to agree to a more authoritarian style, I would have to respect that authority. And I cannot put my trust in an organization that has bankrupted the nation over all these wars, that has squandered Social Security. We're talking about that. That's, that's bankrupt. The pension system, the financial system has been totally rigged and bought out. 
by Wall Street. They manipulate the Fed like crazy to prop up these nasty banks, which have a chokehold on our manufacturing industry. So all the things that I care about, the government fucks up. They don't do anything about the border. So why am I supposed to give them yet another task to fuck up? Excuse my language. But this is exactly where I'm coming from. And it's not a, a position of like hatred to the other side for wanting to be, you know, feel good and everything like that. And, and I get the theory, but the implementation throughout my entire life has just been these guys are not to be trusted. So I don't know if that rant, you know, made me sound like a lolberg or not, but it's how I feel. I don't know what you guys think. I I agree. Well, it's it's interesting because well, we're talking we're trying to get into social security and other entitlements as well, and just I think right now we're just discussing the the concept of entitlements, and you know Hank had mentioned uh, Otto von Bismarck uh, as what he thought of, and uh, what's what I found interesting in the research to this was that actually the United States when much of the world was busy setting up a great deal of these sort of social entitlement schemes and a lot of these insurance um, and pension and unemployment and health systems uh, for you know social democratic purposes or whatever, um, the United States was barely experimenting with it, especially going into the 1930s. Uh, there were a few states that had been up to that point experimenting with it, and states historically in the United States were where, if there was any kind of public welfare spending, that was where they would originate from. Uh, but you know, going into the 30s, I think Wisconsin was really the first state to actually try some kind of scheme, and it was very, very um, uh, low scaled it was really only for those very much in need it was you know there was like a bit of means testing that was attempted to integrate into it i mean the united states when the world was busy trying to construct these social systems basically actually reduced spending at a federal level and as a whole reduced spending on social issues like these because at that point most of the civil war veterans who had been uh, and veterans had really been the only primary sort of entitlement beneficiaries for much of American history. Most of those guys were dying off or dead. So there was less money to spend on social entitlements. Um, so historically, the United States never really felt the need to jump into the social entitlement game. And around the time that it did, when it actually got into the social, uh, you know, social insurance game, um, the, you know, like the demographics and the system was so favorable, like the it was so easy to manage because we had uh, even just in 1960, we had five workers for every single Social Security recipient. We had five people in 1960. So 30, you know, 25 years after the passage of the Social Security Act uh, in 1935 under FDR. We still have these very, very favorable demographics where we have five actual working people, people in the workforce actively, not even like the total amount of people that could work, people actively in the workforce as opposed to those actually drawing from the system. Wait, five to you, one. Five, okay, that's the ratio. Yeah. Right. That, that was the ratio then. So it was, you know. So five workers to one dependent. Right. Yeah. So at the time, you know, you're, you're saying that like you the system is unraveled and they basically bankrupted it. I mean, you're right. But 
the United States had for a long time resisted the urge to even perform these actions. And then when it actually decided to, it really, you know, there was a quick realization like, oh, well, this is going to be easy to implement and this is going to be easy to maintain because we have great industry, we have great trade relationships, we have a great demographic outlook, we have low social problems, we have, you know, good moral population, we have a lot of private charities that pick up the slack that do a lot of the work for us. We have a population that values savings and investments heavily, even during the, you know, the depression is really a a savings and investment driven population, despite the kind of Keynesian attempts to stimulate the economy. So the, you know, the architects of the American entitlement system in uh, the you know, mid 20th century, especially starting in the 20s and 30s, had basically the whole set of toys to play with. They could do whatever they wanted because every single facet of the system was working in their favor. Now, obviously, literally every facet of the system is working against their favor. Uh, I think it's projected that by 2025, 2024, we'll, we will hit the um, less than two to one ratio of workers to recipients of Social Security. But hey, Hans, I heard immigrants are going to save us. Uh, yeah, I mean, this I mean is isn't that one of the reasons this, why this they're an, stuffing this is us an aside. with these people? Um, but we know that's not going to work, uh, predominantly because of chain migration. And what happens with chain migration, and if amnesty were to ever take effect due to chain migration, we would suddenly have uh, tens of millions of old folks from around the world who were brought here uh, through chain migration on the dole. And that would probably collapse the system pretty rapidly. Yeah, uh, I mean, it, it, it's a mistake to look at Social Security in isolation if you're right. if you're looking at things like the the worker to retiree ratio like that only matters to the extent that uh like approximately every worker pays in the same amount or at least you can model it that way because of course incomes are wildly uh distributed towards the right tail as our tax revenues and social security is funded by a flat payroll tax on your first uh like hundred and hundred and ten K or something like that uh of earnings. So I mean when you bring over Abuela and Abuela doesn't get to collect Social Security because she doesn't have any uh US wages. Um so there's no uh no payoff there, but she does get access to subsidized senior housing complexes. She gets Medi-Cal too, I believe. She does get Medicare. She, if she's poor enough, uh, she gets Medicaid. Uh, you know, there, there's peculiarities to a lot of these programs, but I mean, social security, I, I am a social security shill. I will shill for the idea of social security and that you can calibrate this program it's stupid that we have a flat payroll tax that's limited to the first, uh, you know, however many dollars of wage income, but not investment income, not interest income. Like that is a stupid way to structure a <laughs> yeah, program. That is weird. That that is like that's a regressive tax that does not have a reason for being regressive. It it penalizes wow. low-wage workers disproportionately it it's 
it's stupid. And Do you think that was written in because there was enough lobbying from wealthy people to get that taken out for investment? Yeah, income? I mean, at at the time, it was much easier. And like, so there's this idea that uh, a lot of these entitlements, they build their own constituencies. I talked earlier about uh, how you have kind of the administrators of things that are more complex, like anything remotely involving the... Uh, the kind of welfare sector or the medical sector, mm-hmm. there's like bureaucrat gang springs into action there. For Social Security, the constituency is mostly the people themselves. And there is a intentional effort to structure the program so that you have this meme develop of, well, I paid in, so therefore I'm just getting my money back. And... You know, structurally, that's not necessarily the case, but uh, politically, it definitely is. And, you know, from a certain point of view, it, it is true that, like, you, you can model this as, like, well, the first generation just got a straight-up payoff. And then beyond that, like, there's no reason why you can't measure it as, like, okay, we had an initial payoff and everybody else got, like, you know, essentially equity and the uh, the amount of uh, tax revenue derived from wages, which is like approximately like a, a GDP bond, like we talked about earlier. So, I mean, like it's and the administrative uh, overhead of Social Security might as well be zero. Like it's effectively just keeping track of the numbers, like keeping track of how many people died where there's an automatic reporting system for there's like a few hundred people that keep the lights on for a nation of like 350 million people, a lot of whom just deal with fraud where, you know, grandpa dies and you just kind of don't tell anyone so you can keep cash in the checks. So it, it's like, it's a, it's a great program. Uh, it, the funding mechanism is stupid. Like it should just be derived from general income tax revenues like you could just take every tax bracket bump it up by the uh the like uh like six percent or uh seven and a half percent that comprises the social security uh consumer portion of the payroll tax and then just eliminate the payroll tax like i I don't see why that wouldn't be just universally better except for the fact that you can't then look at well i'm paying this amount in specifically social security taxes and therefore i'm entitled to a certain amount of social security payments yeah. well but that that's a political calculus that's not any sort of a, a technocratic yeah. in a, it's an, it's an it's a cultivation of a meme not like a design of a a way of making sure that people get paid a certain amount of money in their old age. I, I really like that you and actually understand how the system works, first of all. I mean, most people I meet who are pro or against really are, let's just be, be frank here, um, unqualified to be commenting because they don't understand how the dumb thing is functioning. I, I think you do. And so I, I give you a lot of respect for that. And I, I would trust somebody like yourself to, to administer this. Um, I've stated my problems with this, though. I just don't think the uh, people in charge are doing what they're supposed to do. Therefore, I do not grant them access to anything I can avoid giving them. But uh, my question to you is, 
under our current system, not, you know, on the chalkboard, which I think is what you're really talking about. How do you see this system getting better and how, if possible? Well, you could, um, so changing the funding mechanism, it has pluses and minuses. Because right now, like the, the fact that it's supposedly this kind of self-contained ecosystem, it's not really because the, uh, when we had, this is like, you know, only 90s kids will remember talking about the surplus and the, uh, <laughs> like God, the surplus, Jesus Christ, uh, part of my French. Uh, and uh, the uh, the initial George W. Bush uh, effort to uh, privatize Social Security that was like real two thousand three hours. Uh, if I, I think even like that was before that man. Months. That was before. Yeah. That was one of his original. That was, that was like platforms. the first thing he tried, yeah. and he got his ass handed to him so hard that he uh, yeah right after he did the nine like, eleven. I think that's uh, bubble. That's oh. the story I remember. Yeah, um, but like the the. Essentially, Social Security takes in payroll taxes. You look up your pay stub. You look at, like, your total income amount. You look at your, your Social Security taxes, and you divide the two, and that's the seven and a half, seven and a quarter. I, I don't remember the exact number. Your employer pays on top of that, um, like, another 5% or something. I, again, I don't remember the numbers. That all gets... Uh, spent on invested in whatever uh treasury bonds so the government takes your money gives it to a different part of the government and then that different part of the government gives social security quote unquote uh some amount of interest each month and then uh that amount of money back at the end of 30 years so it's just out of one pocket into the other you can just ignore that whole thing Hmm. but effectively the amount of money that you quote unquote get back at the end of it uh, ends up being linked to the amount of payroll taxes that are uh, coming in plus a floor plus some elaborate calculation. You can actually go to the social security website and say like, you know, Oh, I made this amount of money for the last uh, 40 years or whatever. What am I going to get when I retire? Uh, it's a fun, uh, fun little thing to check uh, so you, every so often. You remember the uh, SNL bit, probably about the Bush Gore debates, where Gore was promoting his lockbox idea. Yeah, that that didn't mean anything. Like the yeah. the idea of like, okay, so is there a funding shortfall, or will they just print money like they do for everything else? Well, that that's an empirical question. Right now, it's like, okay, <laughs> so like the the legal mechanism of there being a social security shortfall is like, okay, well, we're, we're out of money. So like you, it's constitutionally forbidden for the government to spend money that they're not quote unquote supposed to. So it's like a little bit unclear what actually happens. Like theoretically, they're probably not supposed to at that point cut the check, but it probably doesn't matter because that's something. Yeah, that but can't they just borrow? Things. Oh, absolutely. That's what they yeah, do. I mean, like, so, like, as of right now, the federal government can essentially borrow money for free. Like, people yeah. just hand dog 
like, here's a hundred million dollars. Can you give me a hundred million dollars back in thirty years? Yeah, we don't need to talk until then. Yeah, I mean, like, the I'll, Roman I'll Empire will never years. fall. Just right? give me my money back. That's the mentality so, like, here. It's crazy, man. Like, it's not even the mentality. It's like literally thirty-year treasury bonds are like cost the federal government yeah. less than one percent. So there, there's absolutely no reason for them not to just like borrow so, to the hilt. Okay, what is going on then in like, I think it's Switzerland and maybe Germany that are giving bonds that are negative interest rates. I, I guess the logic is, I'm trying to answer my own question briefly here, is that they think that the likelihood of Switzerland being around is greater than the United States such that they're willing to accept a negative yield in it, order to it's not even that. With them. Um, so the negative interest rates are a uh, artifact of, uh, for regulatory purposes, uh, certain banks, insurance companies, things like that, they have to have a certain amount of uh, reserves. And in the bonds. easiest way to do that is to buy a government bond. Like you, it, it's actually pretty expensive okay. to have a so billion they, dollars of dollar bills just lying around so because you've got to build a building, so you've got to hire a guy. Up. It's like if you're paying like negative 0.2% or whatever, like if you talk to a small business guy that does like a, a retail business that deals with cash, yeah. like ask them how much they're paying to uh, Brinks or any of the like physical cash management companies yeah. to actually deal with their physical cash. It's a lot more than like, you know, 0.2% or whatever, uh, like, you know, HSBC or whatever is paying uh, on their their negative interest rate uh, German or Italian bonds. Oh, okay, or do you do you know though? And I, I I apologize for not looking this up. I just I'm, I'm worried it would take too long. But if anybody on the call knows this, I'm just speculating now that Switzerland, for example, does not actually give its bonds out with a promise of paying less than the principal put in. But what I'm guessing is that like in the U.S. Treasury market, which is uh, handled by, I think they're called prime brokers. I'm trying to remember this now. But the um, uh, like Solomon Brothers used to do this for the U.S. Treasury. They would, they would get the first uh, tranche, and this shows you how corrupt the financial system is because it's basically free money. They would get like the first access to the bids on the uh, like the entire bucket of entire uh, U.S. Uh, treasuries, or maybe there's a couple other banks that have it, but it's a cartel at least. Yeah, and then they it's can like resell those to all these other banks that have to meet their uh, Basel three or whatever it is up to now uh, accord requirements yeah, for you get reserves, spread. and then they resell them at a higher markup. So that that the what is it the price to yield ratio or whatever it is in yeah. bond pricing. When the price goes up, the yield goes down. And so I'm guessing the price is such that there's so much demand, the price has gone up so much that the yield now is effectively negative. But that's only on the resale market, not the initial offering. I don't know if that's well, right. Right. But. So it's the the way that these bonds work uh, generally, there are exceptions. Um, so you have like a, a piece of paper, like maybe a metaphorical piece of paper, but let's just say a piece of paper where if you show up, you rip off a piece of the paper, and you know that piece of paper says like January first, twenty twenty one, 
and you get some amount of money, you rip off another piece of paper on uh, February of uh, 2021, you get another certain amount of money. That's the coupon. Uh, just like, you know, clipping stuff out of the useless thing that comes in the mail. That's the amount of money that you get. There's also a face value. The face value is what you get after you've clipped all the coupons, which takes you 30 years. You get the face value back. And generally, uh, these auctions, um, whenever a government needs to issue debt, which every government, even the ones that uh, generally run a surplus, issues debts for various reasons, um, the same way that even profitable companies take on debt, they will auction off like, okay, we have this many uh, bonds, which like theoretically yield 5% or whatever. And we'll give you back this amount of money at the end. What are you willing to pay for this? And people are like, okay, well, I get this amount of money this month, et cetera, et cetera. Do some math. I'll pay you this amount. And it's either more or less than the face value, depending on what the coupon is and whatever. So depending on what they actually empirically paid and what the coupon and the face value is at the end, you can figure out what the effective interest rate is. So in other words, like there's still cash flow kind of going in both directions, but you actually are losing money on the endeavor if you buy something Dude, with a negative interest rate. I'm putting this in the chat. I, I cannot even believe like that this is a real thing. It's just so screwball <laughs> look, look at this chart. It shows the, the effective uh, amount you'll have after investing, mind you, in a Switzerland government bond. After 50 years, starting with 1,000, you will have a grand total of 750 left at the end of it when you get your yeah, and bond this, back. Like, you get less money for giving them money. What the F is going on? It is so, so like, but you're not you're not actually doing that. Like it, it's gigantic banks that it's like, okay, I need to, I need to hold. It. Like you could look at the same chart, and be like, okay, I run like Bill's Laundry, and I have a certain amount of quarters, and I pay Brinks, like you know, five percent of that to take it to the bank, deposit it. I turn that back into quarters. I pay them another like 5% to take it back to the bank and I just like recirculate it. And it's like, holy shit, I'm losing money hand over fist. Like that's. Oh, it's just crazy. I mean, if if, I I get it, if it's like the law, they have to buy it, but I'm still trying to figure out, are they actually like on the initial piece of paper that says, you know, Zurich, you know, as uh, fights, uh, whatever they say in, in Swiss, uh, Swiss Deutsch when they're talking about their bonds, whatever it says on that nice little piece of paper that they used to give out actually in physical form, does it actually say negative on it or is it just the aftermarket? I don't know. That That's what I'm trying to figure right. out. They, they might have gone to like zero coupon. Um, that That's like a... Yeah. This is like real finance autism. Sorry. When you have a zero coupon bond, you skip the whole like, uh, I clip the thing. This is supposed to be about American entitlements. No, it's related though. It's our government's finance. It is relevant. (laughs) It's totally. I know. I'm just, I'm just. So when, when you have a zero coupon bond, you don't get like a certain amount of cash flow every month. It's just, I give you a lump sum. Now you give me back a lump sum in 30 years. It's, 
it's quite possible, I guess, that Europe, I, I just don't know if they've gone to zero coupon where it's like, I give you a million dollars now and you give me back like 995, I, I can't do math right now, thousand um, uh, dollars in 30 years. That's, that's totally possible. Um, I mean, that almost makes a certain amount of sense. And you can actually, you know, fun fact, if you are a, uh, a Wall Street bank, you can actually take uh, you can take a bond and you can create a zero coupon bond, and then you can create a uh, a zero principal bond. And you can segment the two, which gives you higher sensitivity to interest rates on the other side, which is how you make money when interest rates go down without leverage. It's pretty cool. Uh, it doesn't really matter though. The point is, Social Security. It can work. <laughs> like this is it's it's like a straight transfer. It it's like this is this is this is how like the platonic ideal of a a loan or a bond or a transfer. It's like I give you some money now, you give me some money later. Now we're just haggling over the amounts. Like social security, the whole thing about insolvency, it's like okay, well then just either take in more or don't pay out so much. Yeah. Like those are your two options. Both of those are completely practical. We did that in the uh, 1980s. Uh, if I recall correctly, there was some kind of a grand bargain with uh, Ronald Reagan where they restructured uh, the, uh, mm-hmm. the payroll tax and right. the calculation taxes. Yeah. There, there's always haggling over um, like cost of living adjustments. Um, there, there's just, you know, you tweak it by like a couple percent in either direction, on the payout or the take-in side, and like the whole thing is fine. It doesn't matter, and nobody's getting rich off of social security. Like there, like you know, maybe a couple of a uh, couple of uh, civil servants with uh, you know beach houses uh, or whatever that they they're getting from their hefty pensions, but like not from social security per se like the the payouts are like they're they're capped at not that high of amounts like they're they're nowhere near uh like illinois uh civil servant uh pet uh pensions or what have you so like I, I find it impossible to get worked up over social security. I do find it totally possible to get worked up over uh, programs whose sole purpose is not actually transferring the money, just like oh, take you, a dollar. You mean, you mean holding it for you for a later date? You mean like giving like, money from a guy who has nothing to do with the other guy? Is that what you're talking about? Transfer payments? Well, like, so social security is a transfer payment. It, there's no, like, it is. you don't, like, own anything. It's just straight up payroll taxes today fund retirees today. Because, okay. like, think about year zero, how that worked. Like, the people yeah. in 1934 or whatever who were 70 well, years old and they suddenly started getting social security – that was paid for by contemporaneous. That's uh, that's true. Taxes. That's more of and like, like a so quirk on. of starting up. But I would argue that you could interpret it the way you're interpreting it. But I would argue also that, as you said, what you get depends on what you put in. And so yeah. I would say, well, now it does. 
sure, yeah. but it's it's just like you can you can either disregard that kind of initial startup period, or you can kind of look at the flow. It it doesn't really matter that it's either a transfer across time or it's a transfer across populations. Okay, it's either from like previous you to pat to contemporary you. Or it's a transfer from like current young people to current old people. Okay, so you can look it, at it like exactly. Is, it, the is same a certificate of deposit a transfer payment though? Because I think that is probably the closest analogy in the private sector that would sound kind of what you're describing. Like, so I put in a certain amount of money at the bank, and they promise to give it back to me at X date in the future with hopefully a positive interest rate tacked on to the end of it. Um, that's kind of sounds like social security. I mean, it's not forced yeah. like social security is, but I mean, um, it, it's you, you can look at it that way. Like it, regardless of how you're looking at it, the, the interpretation of whether you're transferring from like young people to old people or from, uh, like previous you to government bonds that transmute into some sort of a claim on current payroll taxes, like none of this matters because you know you don't get to change the past you only get to uh change how current workers and current retirees or people who are just about to retire are getting traded off against each other so like from that perspective if you're modeling kind of the calculation about um the the politics of it or the present day economics of it uh as opposed to trying to evaluate whether you got, you know, quote unquote, a good deal or not. Uh, from that perspective, you can treat it as a transfer because, like, you're forced to trade off these yeah. two contemporary interests. Okay. Well, how would you then distinguish Social Security from, let's just straight out, like, call it like welfare? Like, somebody who did not contribute at all, frankly, cost the system throughout their entire life negative or cost them a, a substantial sum their input was negative uh yet they receive money from the government i've always considered that a transfer now maybe you have better vocabulary but how would you distinguish that from social security where somebody is actually made to put in what they take out to a degree yeah i mean it's it's it depends on like okay so to clarify most people um historically have gotten more out of social security even adjusted for inflation than they quote unquote paid in mm. they've, they've gotten a pretty good deal unless you die early i mean but on average like current retirees have done very well like better than they could have done uh by just like buying government bonds uh depending on exactly what time frame maybe maybe not better than the stock market because it's not stock market is it's gay, not but. taxed effectively i mean it's it's like a they call it a tax but it's really just a i i'm gonna take this for you and then i'll give it back with well interest. there's no there's no like there's no back there's no like a lot of this is it, it, right. we shouldn't get too much of, caught up in this i, I think Leads, I think this but... is this is kind of like the uh the classic uh you know trialectic where it's like the the grug brain is like gov I give government money, government gives it back. Oh, I, I just like considered the, a black the mid, hole. The midwit honest, is like, well, you know, it, it's us. a complex system of transfers, et cetera, et cetera. And like 
the super enlightened brain is yeah that you give the government money and then the government <laughs> gives it back <laughs> so it, it's like i i none of this really matters if you're talking okay. about like theoretically there's this thing here and we want to change it the only way that you can change it is by screwing either young people or by screwing old people okay that's that like the all right so my original the, question was can you fix it and you, you just you're basically saying it, there's not a problem there's not a problem sure, is that what sure. You're just okay. like pick that's one like slightly screw old people or slightly right. screw young people. Change the, the, the payouts. But or like, the beautiful thing is that young people turn into old people. So like none of this matters. Yeah, if the if the government's around, I guess is yeah. the assumption. Like as long as as long as you keep overhead nice and low, it's just it it's it's choosing the choosing the shade of of gold that you're going to paint your uh your what if condo I expatriated okay. myself what if i uh sovereign citizen social security i get my if social you, security really yeah you oh. if you retire uh if you i mean that's the whole like wow. americans abroad uh, primary you're still cashless checks i mean there's a thriving industry of people that uh, they retire to a lower cost of living country like you know Mexico or Paraguay or yeah. whatever, and they're cashing their social security checks and it goes a lot farther over there. Okay, but you know that's that's your right as an American, I guess. I, uh, I feel like we owe Hans at this point uh, a return to the center stage. I've I've like really you know quadrupled down i'm like having flashbacks <laughs> to like thriving uh like comment section uh debates national review well, online reason magazine reason com. magazine the uh god uh the daily brickbat yeah the, uh, they're they're like god what was I, their blog i don't know i used to get the newsletters like, like radish mag articles this sort of the thought analysis you're using it's, I mean, I'm glad you came on to talk about this angle. This is an angle that I was not actually kind of prepped to do as much. I was going to give more of like a, a figures-based approach, but this is this is pretty awesome. Numbers don't matter. Yeah, they don't really matter. No number matters. I don't know why I'm here. Just, you're the government. You control the entire amount of gdp you can print the money you can borrow the money at zero percent and just give it to somebody and worry about it in 30 years when all of those guys are dead and then do it again like unless you have a revolution in the meantime which you very well might in which case it also doesn't matter like there's no chain of events that leads to your current decisions about transfer payments between young people and old people. Okay. Which by the way, the young people also inherit the money that you give to the old people. All right. So and let's by the old people to do stuff. Let's talk about some of the other programs. Cause there's, there's a ton. Uh, there's Medicare. There's the, well, I wanted to go ahead. So some of the research I had done, um, I kind of just have some general figures I want to share just because we're talking a lot about the mechanisms of which this stuff actually works. But to give you the, the 30,000 foot view, um, most of the new deal and then later great society, social insurance programs and great for those new deal was the 1930s under Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Great society was under uh, Lyndon B. Johnson in the 1960s. For those of you who, don't know or just need a refresher and uh 
the combination of those two kind of permeates to today in our modern entitlement scheme. Those two eras of entitlement expansions, as well as some uh, work done in the post-war era, uh, post-World War II era, namely, uh, I would say, um, things like the GI Bill are a good example of uh, the in-between of those two primary uh, eras of entitlement reform. Uh, so we're, we're kind of currently inhabiting the system that was set up by those two primary movers. And uh, the basic goal at the outset of nearly all these programs was always the same. Uh, we need a safety net for the elderly, single mothers, disabled, the unemployed, and people f- who have uh, health problems that cannot have those health problems adequately and optimally treated uh, without going into severe debt. Uh, many of the underlying assumptions for welfare in this country and many of the underlying assumptions for entitlements in this country really find their root going all the way back to uh 18th century America, really the end of 18th century America, the end of the Revolutionary War. Uh, The real beneficiaries of the first entitlements in this country that were very quickly enshrined into law were the military, predominantly those who served as colonial regulars and later later to include colonial militia veterans, uh, you know, Going forward into the various wars after that, uh, the, the base of those who felt entitled to government spending and government uh, output were basically the families and the direct descendants as well as the men who actually fought in these various wars, stemming from the Revolutionary War all the way through various small conflicts with Indians into the War of 1812, the Mexican-American War, the Civil War, and so forth veterans, their families, and then at some point, anyone who claimed to be a veteran following the Civil War period uh, was entitled to a certain amount of benefits and programs that were allocated specifically for them and their families. Did that uh, include the of, Confederates uh, veterans? Yes. That's interesting. I believe, yeah, it did. It included basically everyone who was seen as a former uh, military military regular in the Civil War was typically how it was conceived. Now, it was constructed. The this you know we're getting ahead of the curve here a little bit, but the the, the re- a lot of the laws that went into Civil War pensions were basically constructed obviously before the Civil War was even over. So the the intention was to create, as they had learned, as Congress had learned from the politics of dealing with entitlement expansions uh, with veterans of previous wars, especially the veterans of uh, both the Revolutionary Wars as well as the War of 1812 and colonial militia, uh, that you have to plan this out early. Because if you don't, at the outset, sort of prepare for the budgetary expenses that come with this, you will inevitably be blindsided with the amount of people who are going to be asking for money and the amount of people whose families will be asking for money, as well as the families of those who have been widowed. Uh, Those people will also uh, technically be entitled or there will at least be jurisprudence on their side to seek entitlement 
and thus you have to prepare. So initially, it was prepared solely for Civil War veterans who had fought for the Union. Uh, that was expanded after the war as an effort in reconstruction to try and amalgamate all the states together and trying to you know uh, treat everyone fairly because uh, when the United States sort of took over the Confederate government as it were, it basically assumed everything that the federal government had, all of its spending and so forth. So they tried to then reallocate resources to people who had become citizens of the United States again um, and who had fought in the war. I think also because uh, it would have easily been a constitutional battle in the Supreme Court that the uh, the government would have lost if they attempted to discriminate against those who had fought on the other side, but who were then now American citizens. And, and so yeah, well, at that point, I mean, who, who's who's got anything to uh, argue with? I mean, yeah, the whole Constitution was held up by the Confederates as you, you don't have sovereign reign over us if you don't abide by this document. And it's like, well, yeah, we do. So, I mean, if they had complained about not getting benefits, I mean, I guess the North could have just shoved their boot on them again. I mean, not to be so cynical, but that's literally what happened, uh, sort of ironically, is that right. they're using the Constitution as a... I, I think what I was sort of wondering when you said that, and I think it's fascinating, I didn't know that, but it it reminds me of um, the saying that the American way is to seduce you as opposed to the Soviet way, which is to coerce you. And I mean, in well, reality, that, it's uh, both. Uh, but let's be honest. Yeah, the but. reality becomes both. In um, you know, the passage of the Social Security Act is interesting because what you're really talking about when you're talking about Social Security was the coercion uh, of state governments to expand their own entitlement programs as part of this larger national effort. That was why it was basically a constitutional battle, and, and it had to win under the general welfare clause at the Supreme Court. Um, but there was a, a real co you know, it was basically baked into the passage of those laws. There was a coercive effort to bring states into the fold, states that had either uh, uh, programs that were not adequate or had a very unorthodox model or didn't exist at all. And the idea was to inculcate state governments into a more cooperative effort with uh, uh, spending, spend matching with the federal government. So the, the way of life of the United States at one point was to seduce you. Yes, you know, uh, there was it was basically guaranteed after the Revolutionary War and especially um, after the pension laws of 1818 and 1832. Everyone knew the score that if you served in the American military, you and your family would be looked after afterwards in some way. Now, you weren't going to live high on the hog. You weren't going to receive a grand annual payment every year that would you know, completely cover your entire living expense. But there would be something there for you. You would definitely get something from the federal government along with your military title, your rank, you know, prestige, and sort of the, the network and social connections that you would make in the military as well. Um, so a lot of this was originally funded. The idea to fund entitlements in America was basically with trade, industry, tariffs, and of course, uh, booty. Now, this is a particular way in which the, the naval pension was funded. 
um, that the pension of the U.S. Navy for a very, very long time was effectively funded with war bounty and privateer bounty. Oh, I, th- uh, I thought you meant a, uh, a uh, young woman's rear end, but uh, no, I'm just kidding. I, the old the old term for booty. I know, you're right. That's how they used to call it. So uh, bounty, right? So basically, uh, the, for a long time, the United States Navy, especially after the Revolutionary War, was doing the dirty work for much of the world in cleaning up piracy. Um, the inheritance of the oceans that the United States took from the British Empire was a slow-fought victory. And one of the ways in which we actually managed to achieve this victory was going around the world, opening up supply lines and trade lines that had previously been too dangerous or too cumbersome or unnavigated, and flooding them with our own export, trying to build new markets and trying to connect places that had never been connected before. In order to do that, you had to solve the primary concern of safety. Uh, For a long time, even throughout the 19th century, or at least through part of the 19th century, the main concern of expansion of new trading routes on the oceans and the high seas was the threat of major piracy operations. There was a time when piracy operations were at a near technological par with the Dutch East India Company, the British East India Company, with the British Royal Navy, the French Royal Navy. You know, there was a time when pirates were organized, had technology, had skills, had organizations, had uh, safe harbors, had whole islands that they owned themselves, had bribery networks on the mainland. It was a, it was an extensive problem. They were the they were a more advanced drug cartel in a way of their time. Um, and they were the primary obstacle to in the United States entering new trading markets because much of the world had already been um, subsumed into someone else's trading market. And the mercantilist way was that you owned some amount of a trading market, you owned the shipping lanes, and that was yours. And you patrolled it with your navy, and you had already fought for it and controlled it, and you weren't going to try and expand too much elsewhere. The United States needed a way to do that. And obviously, it needed a way to pay the people who had been pay and look after after they had retired, the people who served in this endeavor, especially on the naval front. Um, The American Navy got so good at killing pirates on behalf of other nations, on on behalf of our own commercial interests, that by the mid-19th century, piracy was basically dead. The United States Navy was so good... Let me, let me repeat this, so good at killing pirates, we basically ended the technological parity that piracy had with the navies of the world and set, permanently destroyed many piracy operations that used to operate in a lot of theaters in the Mediterranean, in the Caribbean, around Africa, in Southeast Asia, and so forth. The United States permanently ended these operations. Um, the most famous example being the Barbary Wars, where Thomas Jefferson basically Shores owed Tripoli. Right. Thomas Jefferson basically instructed the U.S. Navy to genocide the entire Barbary Coast permanently. Permanently killed off an entire well, population. How much of that was motivated by the fact that they were enslaving uh, yes. at one point like a million Europeans? Yes, they were they were they they were terrible. And they had been plaguing the Mediterranean The Mediterranean was a place not getting a lot of exports from the, from anywhere really, 
and the United States saw them as potential good trading partners. The only problem was that the Barbary Coast existed, as well as pirates still funded by the Ottoman Empire. The United States permanently pulverized both those factors in the Mediterranean. The end of piracy in the Mediterranean was a phenomena of the United States. Before it was even like a full-fledged world power, the United States basically rented out its navy, its privateers, to other countries, uh, uh, and on behalf of our own commercial interests, to wipe out the piracy threat. And the U.S. military conducted similar operations throughout the 19th century against Indians, and we fought various wars, and the bounties and the reparations and the land values and so on that we received in these wars would then go to help fund pensions. Um, for a long time, this was sort of a self-sustaining process, and we utilized tariffs that were funding the federal government in general, and some allocation of that federal funding was then directed towards uh, pensions for military. Now, there was a lot of expansions of these laws throughout the, the 19th century, and as I said, they kind of became standard practice. If you're going to get into a war, one of the things you have to consider is military pensions after the war. You have to try and allocate resources ahead of time as much as you can, determine how many soldiers you're going to have, and so forth. Um, can I make an observation? Sure. Hearing where all this started, and it makes some sense i i kind of get it you know a guy loses his leg after he was forced to uh, fight for a certain government and he uh, comes back alive and that government is still intact arguably partly at least because of his efforts yeah he might he might uh you know have earned something there he might uh, be owed something by that government that did that to him uh, and what he did for that government um, would seem to make sense. But it seems like starting to that point, and if you look to where it's gotten now and everything in between, it seems to have started with the most deserving to now everybody gets a thousand bucks. There's not even any needs based testing. It's gotten so loose. It's so interesting to me how right. it's, it's gone from old world resource constraints to. Robots will do everything for us, and we can just sit around and play PlayStation all day and become idiots uh, like an idiocracy. And that, that's what scares me, but I just I find it fascinating how it's gotten to that point. Yeah, and so by, by the 1880s, um, the pension problem, as it was being called, had kind of hit political zenith. Um, on one hand... They, the Southern Democrats, who had kind of been recently um, inculcated back into American politics uh, and were still a very, very powerful force in American politics, uh, were very unsupportive of more pension expansions for Union soldiers and for pensions, exp pension expansions in general. Uh, they were the fiscal conservatives of their time, if you will. There was plenty of sort of political inside baseball that really was going into this um, calculus. But generally, you know, they, they stood for the interests of those who were more fiscally conservative and were concerned that pension spending was getting out of control because as the American uh, state grew and as America grew and America became more embroiled in foreign conflicts in America was starting to get involved in overseas expansions. Inevitably, the question is asked, well, you know, we're going to have millions 
of pensioners. We're going to have all these people who've served in the military because they're going to live, they're living longer now and they have more supportive families and they're just going to be drawing our resources. Um, and obviously the North, which was basically entering the beginnings of the progressive era at this time in 1880s, 1890s is really the, the beginning of the progressive era was very much in favor of pension liberalization and expansion of the pension program. There were even those in northern politics in the 1880s and 90s who were already talking about a widespread government pension program, not only for just military veterans, but for the old, the infirm, the ill, for the widowed, and so forth, um, as well as the uh, children who had been – or people who had been injured when they, while they were child laborers and so forth, them. The remaking of the American social dynamic was really the, the goal of the – progressive era as we discussed in an episode well over a year ago i think at this point and this was part of that the creation of this uh european bismarckian style system around this time bismarck is constructing the uh the system that would go on to be his legacy in germany and europeans are experimenting with systems like this uh, already at, sometimes at local levels sometimes at national levels um so by the mid-1880s, pensions had grown to about one quarter of federal spending. And it kind of reminds you of the dynamic we're in now, where entitlement spending is approaching 50% of our spending every year at a federal level. Um, but it was a big deal back then in the 1880s to have a quarter of the, a quarter of the budget go to one thing that wasn't infrastructure, that wasn't military-related. It was strictly the pension programs. Um, excluding the interest on the debt that the U.S. had, and despite um, decades at this up to this point of consecutive surpluses and many years of surpluses throughout the 19th century, the United States was still very concerned that we were potentially creating an untenable scenario where we would be funding the pensions of millions of veterans. Um, this kind of resulted in a lot of arguments that eventually uh, gave way to expansions of tariffs and the construction of the general welfare state for those who had, who had pensions as military officers and, and, and who had served in the military in general. Um, this kind of became the primary thrust of like Grover Cleveland's campaign for president. And um, there was a great deal of sort of hidden politics around the pension problem that was the political fortune or misfortune of many in this time. Um, and it kind of goes undiscussed because it's a relatively boring topic, I think, for a lot of people. Um, and it's hard to kind of mesh yourself in the world of 1880s and 90s America. But to the average American then, the notion of spending that much money on a single line item was particularly strange, especially because um, certainly their parents and very much their grandparents had been raised in America where that was not thought of as normal to be spending that much money on a federal level to citizens across the country. Well, that I, I, was, don't, I don't know this offhand or the numbers specifically, but I got to imagine the federal government was – I don't know if it was smaller than the largest state's government, but it probably wasn't that much bigger. Um, it was so ago. it was not it was not that much. The federal government by the 1880s and 1890s was 
becoming like the federal government we know now. It was centralized. It was basically running 24-7, 365. The bureaucracy had been created effectively. The beginnings of the administrative state are there. We have a full-time military now. Congress, even if it's not in session, is still kind of actively working on things. There's a lot of political connections going on. There's the expansion of Washington, D.C. You know, the, the federal government is uh, inhabiting the in starting to inhabit the role, especially after the Civil War and Reconstruction, that we know of it in now. Uh, it, it's definitely a full-time federal government. It was not the um, sort of fledgling meet for a couple of weeks and then bail government that uh, it had existed as less than 100 years prior at the beginning of the country. It was a full-time bureaucracy, and it resembled very much uh, the federal governments or national governments of um, Berlin, London, Paris, and so on, its, its European counterparts. Um, so kind of fast forward here, but uh, by the time the 20th century is rolling around, uh, the, this issue of pensions is, is still at the forefront of, of many people's minds. But we're starting to see uh, the creation of additional programs. And we're starting to see the federal government take a more active role in citizens' lives. Um, so in 1908, we kind of have the Federal Employers Liability Act. And this is really the first time that the federal government tries to uh, step into the labor market. The federal government really steps into the labor market with the New Deal programs around workplace safety and so forth, um, and a lot of regulations there, but this is the first attempt at it. And again, this is during the progressive era, and uh, the, the idea was the federal government would, uh, they would try and create these social insurance programs for injured workers. And... They wanted to ensure that there was enough insurance liability should something happen to them, that it would be covered. This is way beyond the scope of the military pensioners. Now we're talking about a wider class of people, federal servants, basically. Now you know we're expanding the, the realm of potential people who can benefit from these entitlements. And then in 1911, we have the Mother's Pension Movement. And although this was not necessarily successful in creating a lot of national regulation or, or, or federal regulation or federal uh, legislation, uh, there were plenty of state governments that adopted procedures, that adopted programs to help uh, widowed mothers to help single mothers and so forth because this is kind of the early roots of single motherhood really starting around the time of prohibition ironically um, and the idea was to create a sort of a, a link between a lot of the private charities that were providing for women and state government programs with federal oversight now the federal oversight did not come but there was definitely a slow beginning of a grassroots movement to build up uh, the necessity for things like Social Security. Um, and finally, you know, around 1904, 1934 and 1935, we're in the midst of the Great Depression, right? And uh, they're trying to construct 
a way of, of in which they can assure that there is a basic safety net, that there can be uh, general welfare for the elderly. Now, obviously, we know from the rest of the New Deal that it was going to be expanded to a lot more people, that many people in this country would end up getting uh, some kind of benefit of some kind. But the idea of the Social Security safety net um, in the, the form it's taken now was ironically opposed by FDR. Um, when FDR realized that the drafts of the, of the legislation being written um, w wasn't really like a contributory pension system, which is what he had wanted, uh, he, he ordered it rewritten towards what it actually kind of became at the outset. And he said, um, this is the same old dole under another name. It is almost dishonest to build up an accumulated deficit for Congress to meet. Uh, but obviously it didn't work. By the 1940s and 50s, uh, Congress had switched Social Security back to a pay-as-you-go system. And uh, this is, there was actually like a lot of post-war consensus around this in the 40s and 50s. There was almost no opposition to this shift for some reason. Uh, it's not really clear why that was. A lot of post-war American politics was very consensus-driven. Everyone seemed to agree on everything that was being proposed. Because if you're the kind of king of the world, then you know, obviously everything you're saying must be pretty good, so why not just approve it? Um, now we can kind of talk a little bit more about the other programs that kind of come into play, like Medicare and Medicaid. Hank, I don't know if you have any hot takes on Medicare or Medicaid. Uh, Medicare and Medicaid, so it, they're not really separable from our completely broken healthcare system, intentionally so. Uh, the so there, uh, there's a blog that's kind of foundational, uh, The Last Psychiatrist, um, that I think is still up, even though he's not active uh, for several years now. Uh, but he has an interesting uh, analysis of uh, Social Security disability income and uh, the other uh, quasi-disability uh, program that's a uh, name that I don't remember. Um which are not actually funded by Social Security uh, taxes, but are just a, a straight-up uh, payment for momental disability, including, uh, turns out, I'm, I'm depressed, I can't work, I've never been able to work uh, due to the, you know, the conditions of my, my poverty uh, and uh, you know, my, my situation here in Chicago. Uh, please gives me that uh, for free. Uh, I mean, Medicare and Medicaid, though, they're like, it's possible to posit a system like Medicare for all. It's not even clear that that would be worse than what we have now. Like it's, it's so screwy, uh, the healthcare system that we currently have that literally almost anything would be better including rolling the clock back to just like it's 1950 and MRIs just don't exist. Uh, but it's also much, much cheaper. Uh, it's, it's, 
a massively expensive program. It's something that's only getting more expensive and there's obvious political pressure to make it more expensive rather than uh, the opposite. So I don't, I don't see how that in particular is sustainable when essentially the, the federal government comes up with a price list uh, by fiat that uh, is what they're going to pay for certain uh, medical procedures, for certain prescription drugs, and for certain uh, uh, medical services, so loosely construed. That's Medicare and Medicaid. They both have different price lists, so Medicaid is far less lucrative. So if you're trying to find like a dentist that takes Medicaid, you're essentially completely out of luck because Medicaid doesn't pay anything to the provider that actually makes it worth their time. Medicare uh, is uh, essentially, you know, it's more or less uh, sustaining the uh, the U.S. healthcare system. Like it, it's extremely lucrative for uh, you just set up the right uh, hospital or clinic in the right place and just, you know, your bread and butter is uh, Medicare. There's entire towns that are essentially constructed around their local medical complex. There's a bunch of retirees and it's just, you know, Medicare payments that finance the operation of that whole complex. So, I don't know, it's like a nightmarish like you, you can't even begin to see where you would address that because the uh, the operation of that thing kind of bakes into the cake uh, so many parts of our current cost structure that it's like okay, well, you're talking about like nineteen percent of GDP or whatever, which is insane, but that's people's money. Like at the point at which it's 19% of the economy, if you cut that in half, <laughs> like still ungodly, you, you, you cut your GDP by 10%. Like that, that's like great depression well, level GDP collapse. That's a, that's a good point. But you could also say that about, I mean, I'm not going to say they're unproductive, but let's just say they're not um, optimally allocated uh, in many, in my view at least. I mean, you could say that about the military, uh, for example. Yes, you cut your GDP, but you know, are we gaining by having these guys uh, start brush, brush fire wars in Africa, the Middle East, uh, rustling up dictators in South America, yet they, meanwhile, they don't patrol the southern border? Sure. These I mean, are the like, things that, that, that perk. Uh, that, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it is obvious me, so. that you, you don't get anything out of it even close to what you're paying into it as a yeah you know really at any level unless you happen to be employed by the medical sector uh we spent 630 billion dollars just so everyone is aware we spent 630 billion dollars on medicare last year that's net total that figure is projected to rise to 1.3 trillion dollars 10 years from uh from now, I mean, if anything is going to make you put on your uh, your no political solution like uh, diagnostic face mask, I guess let's say. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we we've uh, graduated like, from hats, and now we're it, going full body armor. There's literally no political solution that allows you to peacefully and uh, uh, you know copacetically decide that well we're going to wipe out 
10% of GDP, we're going to take uh, this medical establishment that still has like some amount of moral authority. If you just kind of consider doctors as a group, uh, you know, they, they have kind of the, the second most uh, moral authority by various measures of institutional th- trust uh, behind the, uh, the U.S. military. Um, like you're going to immiserate a lot of those people that still have absurd uh, uh, med school uh, loans, or at the very least, uh, you know, crater what they expected to be an extremely lucrative uh, lifestyle uh, and make them merely, uh, you know, sort of middle class or whatever. There's a lot of uh, medical device manufacturers, pharmaceutical companies, like, you're, you're not going to be able to gore all of these oxes simultaneously and just have that slide. So, let, so let's anybody, talk about Bernie. Anybody yeah. that talks about like Medicare for all, oh, that's going to be the solution. We're going to have single payer. We're going to privatize it. We're having a libertarian solution. Literally anything that purports to drive the cost of these things down has the same problem where like your costs are somebody else's revenues. And they're a powerful political constituency. The more you pay them, the more powerful they get. And if you try to reverse that, I don't see how you're politically successful unless there is uh, between uh, the attempt uh, and the reduction in cost some sort of very dynamic uh, political solution uh, or post-political solution, or however you'd like to characterize it, that results in everybody really being immiserated, or you know, whole swaths of the uh, the country uh, becoming uh, politically disempowered. Well, well, this this actually harkens to um, I used the John Cogan's book, The High Cost of Good Intentions, for uh, some of this research. Very interesting book, very dense, um, but worth a read. Um, and one of the points he makes throughout, especially when dealing with a lot of the pension crises uh, afflicting the United States for a long time, was that whoever managed to reward veterans organizations with whatever they wanted in terms of pension increases, in terms of new programs, in terms of different payout structures, in terms of additional spending on and different, you know, all kinds of things, right? Whoever managed to do that was always going to assure more political power. And it was ironically one of the things that maintained Republican, you know, the Republican Party's political power in the post-Civil War era was this devotion towards the entitlement spending for the pensioners who had served the federal government in war. That was, you know, that the consistent argument you see and, and it's it's sort of trite i think in some way to say this but so this is the party you, of lincoln if, literally if, if you give people entitlements they're going to vote for you which yeah. is it's kind of just accepted fact and we can see that throughout the history of 19th century america when it came to the the, the war pensioners if you give them things like when the Naval Trust Fund basically ran out because the end of you know, tariffs were reduced and there was no more war bounty the federal government just covered it up for like twelve a twelve year period before the public found out about it, and just covered it with general expenses and shifted the revenues around a little bit and shifted the spending around a little bit, and just continued to fund it because no one wanted to go to all those guys taking from the Naval Trust Fund and say, 
hey, guess what? Money's out. Or, hey, guess what? Your pension payment just got reduced 50%. No one wanted to do that because the political consequences would be disastrous. So one could argue that this is what democracies bring to their people. Uh, This could be viewed as a good thing, that they're, they're held to the fire. Governments are held to the fire by their people, by how much they bring to them. Now, my interpretation of this scenario is that the people are short-sighted and they will vote for things that are helpful in the near term, but detrimental to future generations, especially, but even to their own lives in the, in the medium term uh, as well. And uh, you can see that in the cases of uh, just the swelling of Medicare, uh, taking over so much of the budget and also what we're seeing in places like California where the politicians have gotten to the point where they don't even give benefits to citizens anymore. Uh, and that's taking robbing from the actual people uh, in the state of California. And they actually tried to fight that back in the nineties. We did the, we did a show and that came up. I don't remember exactly what the general topic was, but we talked at, at some length about how, that proposition was voted for the, by the citizens of the people to restrict benefit payments to citizens of California. And then the federal government swooped in, I think the Ninth Circuit of Appeals Court again. And now that Trump has changed that court, we'll see what happens in the future. But back then it was, and especially up until Obama was in office, it was very left-leaning. And they struck that down. And so now you have this tottering pension system in California that is being overburdened with these expenses uh, that is going to screw up people who live there. I mean, the tax rate in California went up a couple of years ago by something like 50%. And so the consequences are real and they do happen, especially when you don't have a printing press like the federal government. But uh, the, the people, I mean, again, this is, this is me editorializing. The people don't see the long-term consequences of their, uh, their actions and even if they do like in the 90s then there's all these external forces that come in and screw them up so again we just don't have a system that seems to be functioning the big question is how do you fix it and what do you do about it but um I don't know. so uh, here here's uh some figures for you over 55 percent of all u.s households received cash or in-kind assistance from at least one major federal entitlement program. Among all households headed by a person under age 65, over 40% receive entitlement program benefits. 80% of all people living in households headed by single mothers receive entitlement benefits. And this is something that I found that scared the shit out of me. And nearly six out of every 10 children in the United States actually probably more, but are growing up in a family on the entitlement rolls. And this is a direct quote from uh, from uh, John Kogan's book, this part. The labyrinth of overlapping entitlement programs, each with its own eligibility rules, allows over 120 million people, two-thirds of all entitlement recipients, to simultaneously collect benefits from at least two programs. 46 million people, nearly one-third of all recipients, collect benefits from three or more federal entitlement programs simultaneously. Yeah, this is where you go full libtard, and you're like, well, if we had a, uh, not libtard, but uh, Wolberg, uh, the two genders, by the way, uh, and say, you know, <laughs> that if we just out. had a... Uh, <laughs> 
a universal basic income. Uh, we could just get away with all of these, uh, all of these various overlapping programs, all these state, local, and federal programs. We could just write a check to everybody. If we're going to be writing checks anyway, we might as well just write one check. Overhead would be lower, uh, and uh, everybody would get paid, and society would just be better. Is that gangs platform? The, the, the yeah. problem. Well, the problem with that theory is that a you would basically put a massive damper on consumer spending by those people because that's what they're spending it on. B, you would basically have to dismantle an entire bureaucracy that has been set up for that's the big one. over 130 years at this point yeah. and has no intention of going away. Yeah. You can't just get rid of them programs because, again, the overhead is somebody's paycheck. So like, waste I, I, fraud and yeah. abuse buys condos in Fairfax. Like waste fraud abuse plus you know your ten percent, eleven percent, twelve percent overhead yeah. of administering these things, like that's that's valuable. That's somebody's payoff, that's somebody's uh recursive uh, political donation. Like you if you get rid of that, the like there there's this idea that oh if the EBT shuts off, then the city's gonna burn. It's like no. If EBT shuts off, then bureaucrat gang is going to hire a fucking hitman to kill you. Okay. Like that—that's the failure case. Not like no nobody cares if Ferguson is on fire. People care if like Northern Virginia uh, federal contractors don't get uh they're agreed on uh lump sums every month let, let me let me throw a counterpoint to you and i i generally agree there's definitely a lot of institutional uh inertia for lack of a better phrase there's a lot of uh, interest or special interest you might one might say uh, in these institutions wanting to keep their institutions running that seems to be the uh, purpose of life or organisms in general to perpetuate themselves and grow so that that's definitely an incentive for them but what happened in the deregulation era of the u.s and similar countries like uh, the uk was we saw somewhat of the opposite of the unraveling of some of these bureaucracies which was shocking to me but it it happened and it happened in the u.s with the deregulation of trucking railroads airlines uh in the uk it was probably more severe in the actually shutting down of physically uh, state-run industries and so it can happen and they put up a, a big fight and there's definitely fallout from it but it's theoretically and in empirically possible well one thing i don't think anyone's analyzed is potentially the ending of those bureaucracies, I mean, those bureaucracies weren't ended. They, I think they continue on in some form. Um, well, there, there uh, are some uh, functions that the government plays in railroads, right. for example, but it does not set prices. That, that actually used to happen. I mean, trucking, used, they used to set prices. All of this stuff was very uh, much, much more centrally planned than it is today, uh, speaking generally. I mean, th there's one figure from uh, Harvard Business Review from 2016. I'll never, I, mean, I have this article bookmarked and I just uh, pulled it up, but uh, excess management 
cost the United States three trillion dollars in twenty fifteen. And it, it you know, it's basically that's pretty uh, vague. Excess well, yeah, I mean management. that's basic bureaucracy across the board. My point and what I'm getting at is that those those bureaucrats went somewhere. They didn't stop being bureaucrats. They became managers at companies, probably at the industries they were regulating. They became authors at the Harvard Business Review. Right. It, the The overhead goes somewhere. The overhead doesn't go away. The overhead just kind of gets shifted around. And I think you maybe, you really, you reduce the complications of the overhead, but most of it stays. And I think, um, you know, if I'm looking at like a timeline I have here of a lot of the expansions of these kinds of entitlement programs, I would assume the expansions of entitlement programs has been in effect a way in which we've managed to keep many of those former bureaucrats employed. As we shift away from the uh, bureaucracies surrounding certain industries, we have to, you know, we, we further, we seem to be uh, consistently expanding the bureaucracy that manages our entitlement sector. And you know, it's how even just not even like the expansions to Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, GI Bill, food stamps, the special supplemental nutrition program for women, infants, and children in 1972, supplemental Social Security income in 1972, income tax credit in 75, energy assistance programs. This stuff goes on and on. And I think that as uh, the bureaucracy was begun, and as these programs were created, naturally, once we moved beyond, once we started moving beyond in the progressive era, the notion of the federal government is only going to have those pensions and that kind of spending if you serve in the military. Once we've moved beyond that, it was game over because the entire 20th century since the progressive era has been nothing but like the unending exponential increase in the number of overhead, and the number of programs available for just about everyone on some level to apply for and to try and extract value from. We've basically gone from a very tightly knit system that was meant to oversee the general welfare of our military pensioners and a kind of complex and interesting network of private charities and small state-run programs for those that were um, uh, disadvantaged or affected by exigent circumstances to a full-blown Bismarckian-style social security complex that over two-thirds of the country is utilizing in some way. Over the majority of the country is already utilizing it, and it's only expanded to grow as we saw that over six in ten kids are growing up in households where they're utilizing some kind of entitlement. I would suspect that in 10, 15, maybe 20 years, uh, closer to 70 maybe over 70% of the country will be utilizing some kind of program for some reason. So where do we go from here, guys? Where do we go, Hank? Tell us where we go. Social Security is salvageable, uh, and it will be salvaged. I mean, politically, it, it would be stupid to try. Like the, the whole privatization thing was just maybe we give away some more money to banks, but they found other ways to do that. So the banks are happy. Everybody else is happy. They'll tweak it. It'll be fine. Healthcare and the, the broader kind of uh, welfare state 
the the entitlement bureaucrat gang. That's the thing that uh, you know. Like I said before, no political solution. Uh, the uh, the guys who uh, guys who fought for certain regimes uh, still got their uh, got their pensions uh, even after those regimes were ruthlessly uh, ground into dust. I have no idea um, if that will be the case for uh, people who fight for our present regime. But, you know, if I was picking over under, I would say that probably in proportional terms, it's more likely that if you're the kind of uh, the domestic political constituency of this particular regime, you're probably in a more secure place uh, than somebody who fought for this regime, unfortunately. So I don't know what's going to happen. It's clearly, uh, I don't know if it's unsustainable. Um, but it's it's something with no incentives to sustain itself. So I, I see I see no rosy uh, rosy future um, uh, if you are you are kind of a middle class uh, tax cow. Uh, I see a, a tremendously rosy future if you happen to be uh, one of the people channeling, directing, massaging, evaluating uh, any of them programs.